Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. There are currently 17 physicians represented in Congress right now, and with healthcare, health technology, and health research innovations all too relevant, bringing that perspective to Capitol Hill is enabling health agencies and the industry at large to come together, developing and implementing solutions like telehealth, electronic health records, and more. Congressman Michael Burgess is one of those physicians. As the nation combats the coronavirus, Burgess explores the promise of health technologies on mental health, the economy, and more. All right, Congressman Burgess, thanks so much for joining us on GovCast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with your audience. So your background, you are a physician by trade, a gynecologist, I believe. What prompted you to join the medical field? Yeah, I practiced OB-GYN for 25 years back home in Texas. My dad was a doctor. He was a general surgeon in the town where I grew up. His father, who, who I actually never knew, was also a physician. He was an academic OB-GYN at uh, McGill University in Montreal. And again, he died before I was born, but it always was a family legacy that had come from this lineage of physicians. My older brother also uh, had went to medical school and uh, practiced as a pathologist in my same town. So it was, uh, oh, you might just say it was a, it was a family affair. So I guess health and, you know, health-related IT priorities are probably pretty close to home for you. Well, I get correct. And, you know, you think back into my dad's day, IT was sort of not, uh, you know, it wasn't a feature of healthcare. Now it's uh, something with which people have to live. And sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's the opposite of helpful, but it is part of the world. And certainly I think as, uh, as people who take care of patients, we in order to do the best job possible, we need to be facile. We need to be flexible enough to allow that to be a, a useful part of our patient's experience. So why then did you get into public service? I have been here for a while. I was one of the first members of Congress elected after 9-11. 9-11 happened while I was in surgery in my home hospital, just started a very lengthy operation with another doctor. And all of these events transpired. And of course, we did nothing we could do. We kept on with our taking care of our patient, which is what you do. But afterwards, realizing how, you know, just the terribly graphic pictures that were on television and how the world had changed really caused me over the next several weeks to ask if I was doing what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And I resolved that if there were an opportunity for me to serve my country, I would not, not take it. Obviously, if that door opened up, I would walk through it. Then several months later, my current member of Congress announced he wasn't running for re-election. Texas, our primaries are pretty early. So that was basically a middle part of December. December was the filing period to fill that office. I had to make a decision fairly quickly. And interestingly enough, I actually, uh, bear in mind, my online search skills were pretty rudimentary at the time. This is 2001. So I Googled, how do you run for Congress? And actually, uh, after a couple of clicks, I uh, got taken to the Secretary of State's website of Texas and uh, found the form, downloaded it, printed it off. The questions were easy and off I went. And here you are. Yeah. <laughs> The questions were easy. Running was not easy. And, and obviously, you know, a lot of people put themselves out there for public service. And, you know, I should acknowledge that not everyone is successful, but we are fortunate as a country that we do have men and women who will put themselves out there. And it's a little bit of a risk. And it was a kind of risk I really had never taken before. But still, we need good people to offer themselves in service. That is true. And currently, you are one of 17 physicians in Congress. 
So with that kind of perspective that you have of the health field, and especially now as we're battling COVID-19, in what areas are you seeing health priorities really shifting? Well, can we start with the good news and the silver lining to some of the coronavirus clouds that we're in right now? Certainly the emergence of telehealth, and you talk about something that just leapt ahead of where anyone would have predicted uh, that the state of the art was a year ago. Telehealth, patients were able to get the health care that they needed, and they were able to get it without uh, sitting in a doctor's waiting room, exposing themselves to other patients, some of whom might be ill, but became enormously popular. You don't have to pay for that expensive parking garage outside the doctor's building. You don't have to hire a babysitter. And you know what? If you're teleworking, you don't really even need to leave work. It's just toggling back and forth between screens. So it's enormously popular with patients. I know that some of the provisions that have allowed, particularly in Medicare and the the federal payers that have allowed telehealth to happen are going to need to be made permanent. That is one of the things I just don't see. There's a There's no going back on this. Patients, consumers are not going to allow that to revert to the status quo. On the other side of things, too, I guess one of the, we've had hearings in committee since, uh, I can remember going back to when John Dingle was chairman in 2007 on our supply chain, getting drugs and active pharmaceutical ingredients from China. It's been talked about for a long time. This is likely now to be the time where something is actually done about it. So hardening the supply chain, bringing some of that supply chain home, or at least to this hemisphere, and not putting ourselves at risk by having a supply chain that when things get tough and you open the cupboard and there's nothing there, that's no longer, that never should have been acceptable and certainly can't be acceptable going forward. On the, you know, our committee, our subcommittee, the last Congress, really worked on something called the Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act. And you think, oh boy, well, that's, uh, that would have got us ready for this. And, and that was the whole idea. Here we were, again, two years ago, we were the 100-year anniversary from the great flu and the Spanish flu, and everyone talked about uh, pandemics happen, and we got to be ready. So the reauthorization of the Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act occurred, took a while to do it, took a lot of testimony from a lot of experts, took forever to get it through the Senate. I think we passed it several times on the House side, both the last Congress and this Congress, finally got it through the Senate, got it signed into law in June of 2019, and then, well, six months later, here comes this unusual pneumonia half a world away, and the next thing you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You might logically ask, did the committee, in particular the health subcommittee, did we do a look back while that was going on, say in late January through the month of February, even the early part of March, have a look at that law and say, did we do the right things? Did we make the right decisions? Did we make the right assumptions? And here's the sad part. Because of where things were with the Democratic leadership of the committee, we just didn't. To tell you the truth, we haven't. We've done some things on supply chain broadly, but we haven't actually pulled the law out that we wrote that got signed into law by the president that was supposed to get us ready to deal with these. We, as a committee, haven't done just the necessary oversight is probably not the right word. It's more of how did we orchestrate the implementation? How did the agency treat the legislation and the language in the bill as it was written? Did they make the right interpretations. There's a lot of work we have to do, and I expect in the next Congress that work still needs to be done because we cannot allow ourselves to have this kind of exposure. Right. It's almost like the pandemic really opened up people's eyes into what is capable with technology and the importance of things like supply chain and some of the innovations with telehealth, et cetera. So, you know, you're in an interesting position because as you've mentioned during our February digital health event, 
Regulations can both help and hurt the healthcare industry. So can you go into that a little bit? Well, as you know, it was another time and, <laughs> and another recession that gave rise to the stimulus bill and the, uh, and, and the push for electronic health records was contained within that. Meaningful use was something that became a four-letter word in physicians' offices. Some of the regulations surrounding the access to dollars for doctors and clinics to digitize really did seem to carry onerous regulations with it. And I remember talking to doctors all over the country. You know, one of the worst days of my life was when, uh, when I learned about meaningful use and I changed from a clinician to a, a data entry clerk, which of course should never have been the intention of trying to get uh, medical records in an electronic form and get them more usable. I mean, like everything else in medicine, the bottom line is you want, you want to do things that help the patient. So oh, now as we uh, kind of look at the world as the way it has evolved, I do, and I still think this is extremely important. It's something I've worked on for some time. Data, medical data, clinical data really should belong to the patient. Sure, the doctor needs some ownership because they're going to be responsible for the, uh, the continuum of care. And you want patients to come back and see you. You want to see how they're doing. You want to be able to characterize and tabulate that, uh, how the care works as it's going on. But also that data, uh, it's useful to the patient and the patient should have access to data as well. And I think that's one of the directions where we're moving. In fact, uh, just uh, yesterday, I heard the president talk about that, that uh, data should belong to the patients. I'm going to stand up on my chair and cheer because I think that's right. If it's our data, it should reside with us. And there are ways. And there's a, you know, the good news is there's a lot of people working on things that will allow for more interoperability, more of an individual user interface. So that's great. Clearly, you do have uh, issues surrounding privacy, and we've got to be very careful about that. In fact, well over 10 years ago, Ron Johnson, who was the head of Aetna Life and Casualty at the time, in a talk he gave downtown here to health policy people, kind of outlined what he needed in a, to bring us up to speed with electronic health records. And one of the things he said was, well, of course, you need some regulatory reform and you need some liability definitions. And so the third thing you need is you need to define what you mean by privacy and then stop changing your mind every couple of months. At that, you know, sort of that evolving landscape has been difficult for people who are trying to work in this space. The good news is that there is some coalescing around some principles, and I think that it is possible for us to come to some conclusions. Yes, it is likely to include uh, a component of federal preemption because everything should be the same in every state. And I think if you look at that critically, that's the reason that the founders wrote the Commerce Clause the way they did. They anticipated the internet. They anticipated people needing to use information across state lines. So they wrote the Commerce Clause to allow that to happen. So I, I think uh, from the preemption phase, that's workable. There does need to be some liability protection. And I know this becomes difficult when you talk to people on the other side of the political dais, but they'll have to come to some conclusions there because people do need certainty in their lives. They can't feel that. Uh, and now I'm talking, of course, about developers and the people who maintain the platforms where the data is stored. They can't always be worrying about uh, where they might run afoul of the plaintiff's bar and have to answer for that. Sure, there need to be protections in there for the patient. I mean, after all, this isn't being done for doctors. It's not being done for insurance companies. This, at its core, has to be done for improving health for patients and improving patient care, improving a patient's access to care. Among your efforts, you did a lot around interoperability and, of course, in the electronic health record space with the 21st Century Cares Act. And I feel like that's a pretty prominent piece of legislation that, you know, was relatively successful across the board for the healthcare industry. 
How have you seen this piece of legislation impacting agencies and how might it influence congressional approaches to things like mental health care and telehealth, et cetera, in the future? Well, as you recall, Cures was a big bill. It was a pretty all-encompassing bill. It, uh, of course, had the research title, the uh, title that was supposed to help with getting things from the, the laboratory bench to the bedside in a more straightforward fashion, perhaps holding down costs along the way. So we probably should have paid a little bit more attention to that. The other aspects of it, yes, Tim Murphy at the time had authored a significant mental health bill, and that became a mental health title. And then the interoperability bills that I had worked on for several years became the third component, the interoperability title. And in fact, the last Congress, when I was chairman of the Health Subcommittee, we sort of did hold a hearing, had several hearings, we had two hearings on the uh, how the scientific development side was going, also had a hearing on the mental health title and had a hearing on the interoperability title. It did take forever for the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology to sort of digest that uh, information that was in the interoperability title of the Cures Bill. They did finally get uh, their rule published. In fact, I think that was the last hearing that I chaired as Health Subcommittee Chair in December of 2018. Dr. Rucker, who was the head of the Office of the National Coordinator, continued to work on that. Now, they did put things on pause during the pandemic. I hope we're at a place where now we can move beyond that because clearly the interoperability part of this is still, I mean, the criticality of that has not gone away. And again, the bottom line is, is it going to be helpful to patients? And the answer is, I believe it is. And if that is the case, then we need to get on with it. And that's really the most important things of legislation like this is, you know, what does that mean for the patient, which is what it's trying to help. So you're currently running for a prominent position of your committee that you're a member of. What are some of the initiatives you hope to achieve with that? Well, look, here's the landscape now is, uh, as it's going to exist post-pandemic. And you know, the good news for me is a lot of it resides in the jurisdiction of the committee and the various subcommittees on energy and commerce. And probably far and away, the most important thing will be to regain our economic footing, get our economy back on track. That is absolutely critical. And as the leader of that committee, yes, where would I be focused? Absolutely on the great American revival renew, restore, rebuild our nation's economy? Absolutely. So that is that is really going to be one of the highest priorities. No great secret, I'm from an energy state, and energy has been important to the Texas economy. And I would argue that Texas energy has been important to the economy of the nation. And in fact, I would also argue that Texas energy is kind of what led us out of the last recession, the 2008 recession, that seemed to linger for so long. But eventually, it was improved energy production, improved technology that gave us the economic boom that has existed for the last, prior to the pandemic, it existed for the last three years prior. It's not that everything is going to be just as it was before, but going forward, you can't discount the amount of ingenuity and innovation that occurred in energy production in this country that allowed us to become energy independent. And, you know, that's always been kind of a catchphrase with people in public policy and politics. I remember very much in 2008, I was a surrogate for John McCain, and energy independence was one of the things we talked about on the campaign trail all the time. Well, it happened. It occurred. And energy independence really did change the paradigm for our geopolitical position in the world. And it has, you know, prior to the pandemic, and my thesis is after the pandemic also, 
This is what will set the stage for our economic recovery. And it is also, you know, it has a calming effect on some of the conflicts that can occur around the globe. It's not just a domestic issue. It is a geopolitical issue as well. So they are first and foremost uh, focused on energy. I know there are people who are concerned or have environmental concerns, sensitive to those. But two, if you look at how American ingenuity and American knowledge has improved our carbon production, if that's the method that uh, someone wants to use, has actually diminished since 2005 significantly. So how can we capture the vibrance of that ingenuity and that innovation. And that'll be one of the goals on the committee, not to discount renewables. They will clearly have a place to play, uh, a prominent place to play in our nation's armamentarium. You have different states making different decisions about the future of, uh, as I say, how automobile engines are going to be allowed in some states. Sure, we've got to be sensitive to that and pay attention and allow the technologies, the opportunities to be able to move forward. And then, too, it's always struck me that you really can't talk about a carbon-free energy future in 2040, 2050, or 2060 if you're not willing to have the discussion about what is the future of nuclear energy. And part of that discussion also has to be when what do we do with long-term storage of materials after they've been used up by the nuclear reactors, but still need to be stored safely for a long, long period of time. So those are some of the things, you know, just the broad things that I see as far as the Energy and Commerce Committee on the health side. Oh, you bet. We'll be emerging from the pandemic and we will have learned a lot, won't we, from Operation Warp Speed and how medical research and when you think of all of the, on the regulatory side, all of the pauses and emergency use authorizations and waivers that have been issued by the, the various federal agencies, I think one of our big tasks and probably in our oversight uh, subcommittee in the next Congress is to look at each and every one of these emergency use authorizations, these waivers. Uh, if we really required that much energy to pause the regulatory side of things in order to survive, then maybe some of those regulatory aspects are not only not necessary, but they may be injurious. So we do need to have an honest discussion about that, and we need to be willing to devote considerable time to actually sorting through that. Other aspects on healthcare, look, uh, Cures for the 21st Century, last bill signed by President Barack Obama, big bill, carried a lot of stuff with it. There will likely be a second Cures bill, Cures 2.0, whatever we decide to call it, because some of the, things, the lessons we've learned from the first Cures bill, and you look at the next round, what are the next round of likely breakthrough cures going to be? And they're going to be things like uh, cell therapy, gene therapy, CRISPR, gene editing. I mean, all of these possibilities will be in front of us. And we've got to think about how do we emerge into that 21st century world of cures. We can't carry with us a 1970s pricing scheme because it, uh, it is too hostile to patients. It becomes too difficult. So one of the things I've encouraged when I talk to people on the pharmaceutical research side, please help us in cures to understand how best to approach some of the problems with, if you have a therapy that's going to only be administered one time and cure a problem that otherwise would be lifelong, how do we properly amortize that so that your research and development is compensated and rewarded, and at the same time, it's available and accessible to the patient population who needs it? Right. And the pandemic, I mean, I'm sure that has, it's important to constantly reiterate like how many impacts that has across the board, not just for health, but also the energy side. And then there's the impact to the entire world, you know, like it's important to emphasize that. So I'm glad you kind of got into that narrative there. 
And I guess one other aspect, and we certainly can't forget it, is uh, our reliance on our broadband network. You know, it was called into service in a way that I don't think anybody anticipated. So if you think of it as a national massive stress test on our national broadband network, and for the most part, it passed. It delivered what was needed and when it was needed. But we do understand that there are gaps to fill. There are places that are underserved. Certainly the capacity at times was strained. And the whole discussion around now the build out of the 5G network nationally, I think that discussion has been advanced considerably when you look at just how dependent we were upon our broadband networks to get us through the pandemic. Because uh, sure, it's telehealth and you don't want the network to go down when you're in the middle of a critical telehealth discussion with a patient. And sure, it was distance learning and you don't want, uh, I mean, it's tough enough shape that kids are, are losing so much of the learning opportunity from the end of last school year and the beginning of this one. But uh, you don't want a child's school day to come to an end because there wasn't the broadband capacity. And the, of course, the telework that is being done and people that are successfully completing their tasks online rather than in person because it is safer for them. You want that to be able to continue. So it's really defined, you know, one of the other jurisdictions of our committee is the telecommunications subcommittee. And it is uh, really the criticality of that aspect of what our committee work is was clearly put on display during the pandemic. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier on, but with all these changes with our infrastructure, you know, with the supply chain and et cetera, security continues to be a concern in different ways. And you wrote about this in a recent op-ed that I read this morning. How do you see government tackling these issues around security, especially with the increase in telehealth? We have had a number of hearings on this over the years. I will tell you, I don't think... uh... I don't think any one of us has all the answers, but there was a rather jarring story in the in my uh, local newspaper, the Dallas Morning News, a week or so ago about uh, the first attributable death to ransomware hacking, where some poor woman's data was sequestered because of a ransomware attack, and it was felt to be injurious enough that she didn't survive whatever the underlying event was. So clearly, it is... Uh, being able to provide the type of information that's going to flow across the network, and particularly in the telehealth space, but being able to do that safely and securely and not be vulnerable to people who want to steal data or people who just want to uh, who want to hijack it. So it's, uh, it is critically important. I will also tell you that there was uh, an individual brought to my attention. Uh, they, said, they said, you know, our daughter has uh, some significant medical problems, some of which could uh, perhaps cause her to have an episode of a loss of consciousness. She's out in public. I'd like to be someone to be able to pick up her phone and know about her and not have that data behind uh, passwords and whatnot when she wouldn't be able to provide them, you know, raise the idea of perhaps, uh, you know, a medical, like a medical alert bracelets that people would wear that would have their drug allergies, their blood type. Perhaps there is a way to incorporate that into someone's personal device to have a yes walled off from other aspects of what they carry on their phone, but at least some of the critical medical data that someone might otherwise have carried in a medical alert bracelet. That's fantastic points. So, Congressman, looking back on both your medical and public careers, was there any moment that you were especially proud of? You know, one that stands out in my mind. And when you think about it, of course, I've had the career in public service. Yes, I've had the career in, in healthcare. But anybody who goes through medical school, and as I did, goes through graduate school first and then through medical school, you also have a significant educational career. And it was toward the, uh, I was in my senior year in medical school. 
my medical school was relatively new. It was, uh, and this was back in the 70s, of course, so it's no longer new, but uh, it was a pass-fail system. So there wasn't, uh, you know, you always hear about medical students are always gunning for the top grade point average to try to lift some of that burden from the student population. They said, well, you're going to be on pass-fail. There is also at the end of your medical career, there's an honorary medical society called Alpha Omega Alpha. Their motto is worthy to serve the suffering. And there was a lot of consternation in our class. You know, how in the world are they? Usually it's the top 10% of the class that's picked for AOA. How are they going to do that with us being on a pass-fail system? So somehow they worked out with uh, professorial recommendations. But the end of the story was I was selected to receive the one of the AOA slots that year. And it was uh, at this point... Uh, it was, for me, personally significant because my dad had been in AOA, and it was sort of the, not just the affirmation of what I had accomplished so far in my life, it was also the direction for what was yet to come in my life, and to live up to that motto, worthy to serve the suffering. That is uh, something I think about every day. Wow, that's a great one. Well, it's going to be certainly interesting to see all the short-term work that's going to go on, you know, during this pandemic. And then when we overcome it, how those lasting impacts are going to play out, especially in health IT. So Congressman, I really appreciate you talking with me about these important issues. It was really a fascinating look into some of the congressional perspectives that are going on right now. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad to do it anytime. I hope it's been helpful and we can revisit any one of these topics anytime you wish. Thank you. Thanks so much. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you hear, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Sponsor at